Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Open your Bibles up with me to Revelation chapter 5 this morning. While you're doing that, just a reminder, if you have middle school or high school students here at Calvary Chapel, we have a Middle Tennessee Calvary Chapel Winter Youth Retreat happening January 21st through the 23rd at Horton Haven Christian Camp. So make sure you, uh, you get some information on that. Talk to uh, Daniel Fernandez, who is, heads up our youth group. And it's $120 per child, and there is, it's, it's an overnight thing. So there, there are scholarships available if, if you need that. So make sure you connect with us on that. All right, Revelation chapter 5. If you were with us last week, you recall that we were transitioning from the things that were in chapter 1 to the things that are, chapters 2 and 3, to the things that must take place after this in chapter 4 to the end of the book of Revelation. This is speaking of the period, the seven-year period known as the tribulation period. Also, regarding the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year literal reign of Jesus Christ on earth here. It's also speaking about the great white throne judgment and then the final destruction and the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And so all of that is contained in that third section of the divine outline given to us by Jesus. As we came to chapter 4, we left earth and went to heaven, and we were caught up with John, as it were, into the third heaven, into the dwelling place of God. And what we found was immediately that captured John's attention was the throne of God and the one who sits upon it. He goes on to describe for us what the Lord looks like in different symbolisms that he shows us in speaking about the various elements of God and who he is and such. We looked at things that were around the throne and from the throne and before the throne and in the midst of the throne. Chapter 4 closes with the 24 elders on their faces bowing down before the Lord as they cast their crowns at his feet. And all of the living creatures all the while are giving glory in honor and praise to our great God and Father. That's where we left off last week. Stand with me. We're going to pick it up in Revelation chapter 5. There is no chapter break in the Bible in the event that happens. I hope you read on chapter 5. And then, you know, people get set in place. It's not like that. It's a continuation. John just goes from one thing to another. So we pick it up here. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, um, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb 
each holding a harp and, a, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we pray, God, that you help us to get a glimpse of who Jesus is. Lord, as we consider the majesty of our great king, the, the price that was paid for our sin that we might be redeemed. God, give us a clear picture of your son this morning. We pray that you would begin to do the work in our hearts as we walk through this passage and that we would respond, Lord, according to your spirit. Let every hear, every person hear what it is that your voice would say to them personally as we come before you now. We ask you to come and teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So recently, my wife and I uh, were watching the Chronicles of Narnia and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we were incredibly overwhelmed, you know, by the symbolisms of Christ, the Christian life, and the spiritual warfare that, uh, that we face that we had missed in previous viewings. You ever go back and watch something, you're like, oh, I didn't see that, and I didn't see that. Well, it blew our minds as we watched it for that this last time we watched it brought tears to our eyes as we considered this messianic masterpiece so well done. C.S. Lewis writing this, uh, this, this, this story to represent the Christian life in the parallel, the series of seven books. If you, if you get a chance, make sure you check it out. But, but it was so incredible to watch, and I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, over the Christmas break, sit down and watch the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or better yet, as my buddy John Lowry would say, read the book, it's way better. So I'll take his word for that. I'm a movie guy. If it's not in the movie, no, I'm just kidding, but, if, but I read very few books outside of the Bible. Um, but as much as I'm not a fan of getting my Christian theology and discipleship from the big screen, I couldn't help but be reminded of another movie as I came to Revelation chapter 5 and the book of Revelation. And perhaps you can see by the slide up on the screen what the movie is. Anybody know what this movie is here? The Matrix. That's right, The Matrix. Disclaimer, this is not by any stretch of the imagination a Christian movie. Okay, it's not by any stretch of the imagination, although... Some people do believe that we are living in a simulation. They're even in this room. Their names are... No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> the Matrix has some interesting Christ-like symbolisms. Consider the lead character, Thomas A. 
Anderson. He's a hacker that is in the matrix, and he goes by the name Neo. Neo is the one. He is the one that the prophecies of the programming world have been speaking about. He's the one that has the program to disrupt the, the matrix itself. Of course, he has enemies, doesn't he? He has the, the, the agents of the government who are inside the matrix as well, trying to stop him from saving the world in a sense. Of course, you have uh, Morpheus, right? Morpheus, who is uh, also a notorious hacker, and who happens to be a forerunner to the one who is Neo, the Messiah of the programming world. And in this particular scene where you see uh, this, this, this image here, you, you find what happened there was Agent Smith, who is the government, has killed Neo. And they finally they're moving on and they're walking away, him and his cronies, and, and in that moment... What happens is Neo is resurrected from the dead. And at that moment, Morpheus, he says out of nowhere, he is the one. He's the one. There's the sign. He's resurrected. And, of course, when he is resurrected, then in that movie, you remember, they start shooting bullets at him, and he just puts his hand out, and they just stop in midair. And then they fall to the ground. The world has no power over him any longer. He is resurrected from the dead. He has conquered the enemy. No longer do anything in this world have any power over him. So interesting. And then he ascends to heaven. It's an incredible picture that we find, I think, of Revelation chapter 5, where we find Jesus Christ as the one. He is the only one. He is the one, the one that was prophesied from old to come to redeem mankind, to lay his life down, to be crucified on a cross, and then to raise again from the dead, to conquer the enemy of this world, to overcome sin and death so that it no longer has any clutches upon us. Jesus is the one. And John declares for us in this passage three specific things that relate to Jesus being the one. John depicts for us in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus is the worthy one. In verse 6, that Jesus is the slain one. In verses 7 through 14, that Jesus is the worshipped one. First, let's consider this morning Jesus as the worthy one. Look at verse 1 with me. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. John's attention is drawn from the throne of God now to the right hand of God whom he sees sitting on the throne. And in his right hand is a scroll. Now I want you to get the picture of this because it's important. The father isn't gripping the scroll. He's holding it as if someone's to come and take it from him. He's palms up, open-handed, that scroll laying in his hand. He's waiting for someone to come and pick it up. It's obviously important because the Father himself is holding it. It's not an angelic being that's holding this specific scroll. It's God himself. And what we find, not only that, just God holding it, but also we find that it's a sealed document What in the world 
could be written on the back of this scroll and within it that it would require seven seals to protect it. Well, there has been much speculation as it relates to this scroll, as you can imagine. Some believe that it represents the Old Testament. Some suggest that it represents the prophetic words that were sealed up by Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. Yet others say it's the lamentations and the woes spoken of by Ezekiel. Some even suggest that this scroll is the book of Revelation itself. These are all interesting, I think, but there is one that I believe that fits more appropriately, maybe two that could possibly, uh, you know, fit what this document might be. One of them being the God's plan for the history of the world. My buddy David Guzik, I love him. He's a great theologian guy, uh, verse-by-verse Bible teacher. Check him out, EnduringWord.com. Awesome teacher. He believes that it is the historical plan of God from start to beginning, sealed, and as God is holding that scroll, uh, that it's, it's really his will for the world. And he believes that primarily because of the, the document itself, the way that it's situated. There are others in, who, who believe that I also feel very strongly about in terms of uh, their, their ability to exegesis the passages of Scripture that believe that this represents the title deed of the earth. Many of you have probably heard that. You know, this is the title deed of the earth. It could be. Here's what we know is some kind of contract because of the way that it's set up. Dr. Robert L. Thomas describes for us this kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in the ancient times and was used by the Romans from the times of Nero on. The full contract would be written on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals. Then the content of the contract would be, brief, would be described briefly on the outside. All kinds of transactions were consummated this way, including marriage contracts, rental and lease agreements, uh, release of slaves, contracts, bills, and bonds. Support also comes from the Hebrew practices. The Hebrew document most closely represent, uh, uh, resembles this scroll as a title deed that was folded and signed, requiring at least three witnesses. A portion of the text would be written, folded over, and sealed with a, uh, a different witness signing on each fold. A number, a large number of witnesses meant that the more importance was assigned to that document. The idea of the title, Deed of the Earth, comes from the book of Jeremiah. You might recall that uh, right before, sort of, Jeremiah was the forerunner to the Babylonian captivity. Remember that he goes and, and he tells the, the king there that, that this is going to happen and if he gets thrown in jail. These guys don't want to hear the truth, and there are many people in our world that still are like that, that rather not hear the truth at all. And so God tells Jeremiah, listen, you're gonna, the, 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 the nation of Israel is going to be taken captive. God is dealing with the rebellious um, hard-heartedness of Israel. That's how he dealt with them in the Old Testament. Perhaps that's how he's dealing with you in your circumstances, the things that you're dealing with in your life because you fail to listen to him. And so he says, listen, I'm going to have to put you in captivity in some way, shape, or storm. I like to call them spiritual spankings. The Lord just giving us a little tap to remind us who's in control, 
Whose life is it that we're really living? Is it ours or it is his? You were bought with a price. It's his life. So the Lord tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want you to buy this piece of property that your cousin's trying to sell you. His, tr his cousin's trying to get out of the situation. He's trying to get what he can because he knows it's coming. He's like fire sale guy. Hey, I'll sell you this for this much. And so the Lord tells Jeremiah, take, take the deal. Buy it. And we find the description here in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 9 through 10. And it says, and I bought the field at Anathia or Anathoth or whatever from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, seven, uh, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And so he takes that, and we know that he puts it in an earthen vessel, and he buries it. The point is this. He buys this piece of property because the Lord told him to do it. It was a sign that the Babylonian captivity was not, it, they, it wouldn't be captive permanently, that they would be coming back, that the Lord would have a place for uh, Jeremiah's descendants and his, his family to go to, that they would have a piece of property there. This is the best connection that we have with the idea that the scroll of the Father's holding is, is the title deed of the earth. Some have severe issues with this idea, though. They say, when did God lose the title deed of the earth, and um, why would he have had to buy it back with the blood of his son? Well, many people point back to the Garden of Eden. And you remember, the, the, the stewardship that God put on Adam's shoulders, he said, this place is yours. S subdue the land. Go in and make something of this. It's, it was given to him as a gift, I believe. He was responsible for the world. Perhaps the Lord gave him the title deed. If that's the case, that's how that went down. And of course, we know that in the fall of man, when Adam and Eve broke the only law that was written in that time frame where the Lord had given to Adam, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, they broke the law. Sin came, and as a result, the world was lost, wasn't it? And somebody had to come back and redeem it. His name is Jesus. He is also what's known in the Old Testament as the kinsman's redeemer. He's the one that came to buy back that which was lost. He paid a great price, no doubt. But the kinsman redeemer, who is Jesus Christ, came to set the captives free, to, do, to redeem what belongs to the Lord. And what a picture we have of that. You can, get a good, you can get a good idea of what that means in the book of Ruth. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer there, and he was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. As I told you last week, the, the Old Testament is full of these symbolisms that you just go back and you read them. Just like watching the Chronicles of Narnia, you can't watch it enough or you can't read the scriptures enough to get all of the symbolisms that are representing Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. That's why we don't, uh, you know, just only read the New Testament. We read the Old Testament too. Do you know Jesus quoted the Old Testament? Jesus used the Old Testament. It has benefit in our lives, and it shows us a lot of different things. It points us to Jesus Christ. So here we have God the Father holding this scroll, whatever it might be. Look at verse 2. Here's 
how this continues to go on. And then he, John says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The issue here with the scroll that the Father is holding is that one must be, listen, worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. The angelic host shouting to all of those in heaven, on earth, and those under the earth, seeking for one who is virtuous enough, who has the divine right, who has conquered Satan in the demonic realm, removing the stain of sin and its destructive nature. These are the defining characteristics that make one worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And of course, we know that it says here that no one was found. Not a single person was worthy. Not one single person in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And John, seeing this unfold, breaks out in tears weeping loudly. It means that he wept bitterly like Peter did after he denied the Lord. His tears are genuine, but listen, they are somewhat inappropriate because what he doesn't know is that there is one who is able, but only one. His name is Jesus. John chapter, or Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One of the elders there, of the 24 elders that are around the throne of God, comes to John, who's probably weeping profusely, and he taps him on, dude, quit crying. You were a disciple of Jesus Christ. What are you doing? You know there's a worthy one. Isn't it interesting that when we get ourselves in difficult situations and sorrow overwhelms us, that we need someone to come alongside of us to remind us that there's one that can help us in our sorrow? It's so interesting to me that how quickly we forget about Jesus, how quickly we forget about his power and his might and his ability to overcome anything and everything that we might find ourselves in. I, like John need that reminder. Maybe you're here this morning and you're overwhelmed and you're, you're, you're just burdened and you feel the, the weight of the world on your shoulders. Listen, there is only one worthy to step into your mess and his name is Jesus. You don't look to anyone else. Don't look to man. Don't look to any person or any relationship or any material thing whatsoever. All of those things are eventually going to be empty wells if you're putting your hope in them to help you out of your situation. There is only one that can help you. His name is Jesus, and he knows everything that you're going through. And sometimes he's saying, I just want you to push through it. I want you to sit in it. I want to teach you something in this moment. Just get your eyes on the Lord. Listen to what he says. Trust the Lord. Here John is reminded of this. He's reminded that he needs to trust the Lord, that he's the worthy one. This, this brings us to what the psalmist said in Psalm 62, 5 through 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in, in silence, for my soul is from him. 
My hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him all the trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Literally meditate on that. Just pause and just let that sink in. That's what the psalmist is saying. John, don't worry. There is one worthy. And we find him in verse 6. And be, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. This is perhaps the most crucial moment in the history of heaven. When creation is in the balance and the search for a worthy one comes up short and all of John's hope is lost. And he's reminded that there is hope. In my mind, right when the elder sort of taps on John's shoulder and he says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, like Jesus just sort of steps out of the throne and he's right there. And John's probably shocked by this. Seeing Jesus, the Lamb of God, standing. He's not sitting. He's not batting. He is standing. It's a sign of victory. Jesus Christ. Yes, he was cut down. He was struck. But he rose again from the dead, and he became victorious here. So we have a lamb that is standing there between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. John notices something else about this lamb, that his victory came with a price. He notices that the lamb appears to be someone who was slain. He bears the marks of the brutal war, the vicious battle that was required in order for him to stand victoriously. Though demons and wicked men conspired against him to kill him, he rose from the dead, thus defeating and triumphing over his enemies. And guess what? For all of eternity, he will bear the marks of the cross. When you see Jesus in heaven, by the way, I think we're here. I think we see this. We're seeing him as a slain lamb. For all of eternity, we will see Jesus. We will see the marks that, that he bore for our sin will be reminded of what it cost us to enter into heaven. It cost him his life, but he gladly paid it because he loves us. Jesus will bear the marks of Calvary upon his body in heaven. We know this to be true because we see this specifically when Jesus addresses Thomas after the resurrection. This is Jesus resurrected and it says in John chapter 20, verse 27, speaking to Thomas, who doubts him, says, put your finger here. You see my hands and put, out, um, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He bore these marks at his resurrection. Zechariah also states that some will ask Jesus about these wounds in heaven in Zechariah 13, 6. And it says, and if one asks him, what are these wounds? Wounds on your back, he will say, 
the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Jesus will be the slain one in heaven forever and ever, but he will be standing in victory. The reason, that's incredible reason to celebrate this morning, isn't it? Because the victory that Jesus uh, overcame in the world, he gave to you and I. So we're going to be reminded of all of eternity of the victory we have in Jesus Christ. Maybe we need reminded this morning that you have victory in Jesus Christ. You can overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. You can overcome. Why? Because he overcame. He took your place. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his power. He gives you everything you need for life and godliness in this world. You just need to trust him. Well, Mark, well, John not only sees the marks of the crucifixion, but he also notices that this, this lamb has seven horns with seven eyes, which are defined for us as the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The number seven is the number that represents completion. Horns symbolize here authority and power and strength. Eyes represent perfect omniscience and omnipotence and complete understanding. The seven spirits we know already, we've gone over this twice now, the seven spirits represent the, the, the sevenfold manifestation, the complete manifestation of the Holy Spirit upon the earth. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. You can look it up later. So here we have Jesus, the slain lamb, who is omnipotent, omniscient, and the sender of the Spirit of God upon the, the Christ-rejecting world. That, and, and as he goes forward, we talked about this last week, perhaps it's the, the, the Holy Spirit himself being sent down uh, you know, to judge those who have rejected Christ. So not only do we find here Jesus as the worthy one, Jesus is the slain one, but also Jesus as the worshiped one. Look at, with me at verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four, 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden uh, bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is amazing. Plain and simple, what we see here. John sees Jesus walk up to the Father, and we see him take the scroll from the right hand of the Father this is the most monumental moment in heaven, folks. This, this moment takes us back to a scripture, to multiple scriptures, that tell us that because of what Jesus has done, he will be highly exalted by the Father. He will be highly exalted. This, this moment is when Jesus, in, in, in a sense, ceremonially takes back dominion over all of creation. What do I mean? Paul said Jesus laid down his heavenly role as God the Son to become the Son of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, 
Listen to what it says. But, speaking of Jesus, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, Jesus never ceased to be God. All the while, he was in human form. He was always God, and yet there's something about that that God, that Jesus himself surrendered his rights, his, his divine rights to become just like you and I, to be empowered the same way that we're empowered. He became the second Adam. That draws us back to the perhaps the title deed of the earth that was lost from Adam in the Garden of Eden. He's the second Adam. He's come to set things right. He's the Redeemer's, the kinsman's Redeemer. And Paul is reminding us of what Jesus has done. But check this out. It doesn't stop there. Paul goes on to tell us what will happen after Jesus becomes obedient to death in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. He says, therefore, God, because of what Jesus has done, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul perhaps is describing for us in this passage what's happening in Revelation chapter 5 when Jesus takes the scroll from the Father and the, Lord's, and the Father has highly exalted him. He's the only worthy one in heaven to do this. Daniel describes this moment as well. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Perhaps what we're seeing in this scene in Revelation chapter 5 is the official ceremony where Jesus is exalted before all of heaven as the worthy one. And look at the response. There is one word to describe the response of this moment in heaven, and it's the word worship. It's the word worship. When Jesus takes the scroll, a worship session, breaks out in heaven. It says the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the redemption song, folks. Only the redeemed can sing this song. He's done that for you and I. I don't know if you find your name in here where it says from every tribe and language and people and nation. That includes you if you're a believer. The Lord was thinking about you from the creation of the world desiring to save you before the world even existed. 
It says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. God knew what would happen to this world. He knew what would happen when Adam and Eve were put in the garden, when Satan would tempt them, that they would be deceived, that they, the whole world would fall apart to a mess. But he had a plan. He had a plan from before the world was even created. I don't know if you're like me, but I would think, like, why would you even go forward on, in that? I'd be like, they're not worth it. Isn't that what we think? We get offended by somebody, oh, they're not worth it. That relationship's not worth it. You, you, you have a break in your relationship and you just move forward. You don't try and mend that, oh, they're not worth it. God says you're worth it. And I think he wants us to say the same thing. The Bible says do all that you can to live at peace with all men. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but reconcile with those whom you have broken relationships with, whoever that might be. Your name was on God's heart when he created the world. And he sent his son for you. And one day, when, we, when we're in heaven with all the angelic hosts and all of the 24 elders and all of those who are be there, there's going to be one song we're going to be singing. It's the redemption song, the worthy one. It's going to be a song that we declare, thank you, Lord, for the blood of your son, that he paid the price for my sins, that I could be redeemed. It's interesting that John notes just right before they begin to sing that what these elders were holding. I think it's specific to the elders. I don't think he's talking about the, the angelic host here, but also just solely the elders that were holding harps and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You know, the harp, it's an instrument associated with worship and prophecy in the Old Testament. We see this in, Samuel, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. And after that, shall, um, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. The context of this verse is when Samuel is going to anoint Saul as king over Israel. The context is, God is telling Samuel, you'll know you're in the right place when you see these things. There's, there'll be worship happening, and prophetic word will be going forward. And then the Spirit of God will fall on you, and you will do the same thing. The harp here is associated with worship and prophecy, which makes me wonder... What will happen to our brothers and sisters who are truly saved in the church of Christ when this worship begins to break out with instruments? What will they do? My guess is they're going to join right in and worship the Lord. Here, it's interesting. Notice also that these elders have golden bowls filled with the prayers of the saints, which are considered incense to heaven. Check this out. Could this be symbolic of 
prayer being a type of worship to God? Incense in the temple burning as a sweet aroma to God when they put the sacrifice, the burnt offering, the slabs of meat that they slapped down, making ribs and all this stuff on the barbecue in the altar, offering it to the Lord was a sweet aroma to the Lord. It's a sense of worship. Your prayers are worship to God. Why are they worship to God? Because they center you on God. He's the focus of, of your, well, he should be. He should be the one you're putting your hope in, trusting in, casting, uh, you know, your cares upon him because he cares for you. Your prayers are worship to him. They, he cares so much about it that he stores them up in heaven in bowls. And there's someone in here that goes, yeah, not, not my prayers. No, you don't, you don't know how I pray. I can't pray. If worship came down to how eloquent we sang or we prayed, then none of our, our worship would be acceptable to him. You can't sing good enough. You can't pray good enough to be good enough. If we're talking about being good enough, then let's put the bar where it needs to be. Nobody can meet that, but it's not. Imagine your little child coming to you, your little baby boy or girl coming to you and saying, Daddy, I love you. Oh, that doesn't sound good. Man, can you go back and work on that and come back later when you sound better? That's never going to happen. What will, that, what will happen in that moment? What should happen in that moment? Sadly, because of sin, doesn't happen in that moment for some is their heart should melt and say, oh, man, what a gift the Lord has given me. He loves your prayers. You should make it your aim to pray without ceasing because it's worship to him. When you pray to God, you're saying, I trust you, God. When you pray to God, you're saying, you're worthy, God. When you spend time in prayer to God, you're saying, I love you, God. Spend time in prayer. It is your worship to him. And one day, these 24 elders are going to break out these bowls of prayer, and it doesn't matter how big they were or how small they were or how, how silly or how serious they were. They are all going to be super, they're all going to be incense to him, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So pray, pray and worship him through prayer. There's something else that I need to point out here that it's important that you understand who is getting worship in this moment. It's Jesus. Jesus is getting worship in this moment. I say that because there will be people who will come to your door and say Jesus is a God. Listen, a God does not get worship. A God does not get worship. Only the God gets worship. Only the God. Jesus Christ is God, folks. Just another point in the scriptures that tells us that there is a triune Godhead that Jesus Christ is part of, and he will get worship in heaven. So when they come to your door, you say, what do you do with Revelation chapter 5, verse 9? When the all of heaven is breaking out and worshiping Jesus. What do you do there? 
you have an opportunity. Jesus is worthy, but Jesus is God. Make no mistake about it. So it, it tells us here that in, in the, this, this, this second person, the triune Godhead, is getting worship in heaven. And then it says all of heaven in this moment is worshiping Jesus, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, and so on and so forth. So here we have all the angelic hosts and everything coming together, and they're worshiping the Lord, and, and the 24 elders are falling down. And then look at verse 11. It says, then I looked. John, taking notice again, says, then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you know I said this last week? I'll say it again. We should get really used to falling down. We should get really used to falling down. We should be practicing on a daily basis how to fall down and not hurt yourself, right? How to fall down and not bum your knees up or whatever. You should be practicing that regularly. If there's one thing that the Catholic Church got right, it's the up and down and up and down and up and down. That's what's going on in heaven. For all of eternity, you're going to up and down and up and down and up and down. Why? Because he's so worthy that you're not going to be able to stop. He's so worthy in his presence, you're not going to be able to stand and, and say, God, you're so lucky that I'm here. Man, are you blessed, Lord. You know, not going to happen. You're going to fall down on your face, and you're going to say, what am I doing here? Wow, Lord, praise you. Thank you, Lord. It's going to be an amazing moment, but you should get used to that. Notice it says here that John looks around because out of nowhere, he starts to hear these myriads, I mean innumerable numbers of voices that are just praising the Lord and praising the Lord, and he's looking around going, where are all these voices coming from? And all of heaven is declaring that. Not only that, but it also says in verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them also praising him too. Isn't that interesting? That every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them is also praising the Lord? This tells us that the Lord will be praised. He will be praised, and every mouth will praise him. The, this, the idea here is that, that there is not a single location that exists that a person of any kind, whether it's angelic um, or, or human or demonic, all collectively, there's not a single person that won't participate in this event where they declare that he is worthy and worthy to be praised. That's what it means when it says every knee will bow in those in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he says every, he means every. There's not a single single created being in this moment that isn't making this declaration to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The biggest thing that we need, here, here we have Jesus as the worthy, the slain, the worshiped lamb in all of creation declaring his worth, recognizing who he is and what he's done. The most important thing that we need to focus on in this moment right now is where will your voice be heard? Where will your voice be heard? Where do you insert yourself in this passage? All of creation will declare this. You're a created being. That means your voice will be heard. You're either going to be in heaven or you're going to be on the earth or you're going to be under the earth, meaning you'll be in the grave waiting for that day when God judges your sin and he casts you into the lake of fire forever and ever. Where will God hear your voice? That's what we need to focus on in this passage. Lord, where am I at in this, in this, in this moment when I see the exalted Christ who is the only worthy one to take the scroll and I see him slain that he gave his life up for me so that I could be in heaven with him so that my voice could be heard from there. Where will your voice be heard? Where will you worship Jesus? As we close here, I would just want to ask you that question, and it's worth your time to consider this morning. Where do I sit with the Lord? You know, am I in right relationship with Jesus? Have I given him, have I truly given him my life? Or do I just check things off a box, read my Bible, went to church, talked about Jesus? Do I have a genuine relationship with Jesus? Because let me tell you something, that is the only way, folks, to be in heaven with him. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you learn. It doesn't matter how many people you tell about Jesus. It doesn't matter, you know, how many... Uh, worship services you attended. It doesn't matter how many notebooks of notes you've taken. And, you know, none of that, all of those are great. They're important, but they don't get you to heaven. All of those things are a result. They should be a result of somebody who's sold out, who has given their whole life to Jesus. And sometimes we can get, our, get these things mixed up. We can begin to think that we're earning our way there. And, you know, I might be preaching to the choir here, but it's worth, there, it's worth mentioning that to take a moment yourself as we close here today and ask yourself, Lord, where, where are you going to hear my voice in this moment? Where do I sit in this moment? You realize that when Jesus starts popping these seals, in heaven, that stuff starts happening on earth, right? And he can't open the scroll because it's, totally sealed, they wrap strings around the seal, then they put a, um, they tie the strings, they put a, uh, a wax glob, and then they put a signet ring stamp on it, seven in a row, you have to open all seven to begin to read what it says. He's going to 
open the seven seals and stuff's going to start popping off down on earth. This is, this is when we begin the tribulation period right here. Jesus is about to judge the world. The question is, where will you be? We believe in a pre-trib rapture. We don't, we don't, we're unashamedly believe in that. Could be wrong, but here's the reality. It doesn't matter because we're supposed to be ready and willing, and we're supposed to be at attention, constantly waiting for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So when the rapture happens is somewhat irrelevant, but at the end of the day, what we know is we're supposed to be ready at all times. So I ask you again, where, are you, where do you fit in this picture? Worship team, will you come on up? And as we close in this song, I want you to think about that. Think about what, about your eternal state this morning. Are you in genuine relationship with Jesus? Do you have the assurance of the eternal hope that lies within Christ? You can have it this morning if you want to. Listen, if you have, if you have walked away from the Lord, you need to come back to the Lord this morning. If you don't know Jesus, you need to repent and receive him this morning. And here's what I'll tell you. You don't know when your last day is, frankly. Nobody does. If we did, we would wait till the last moment, wouldn't we? None of us would be ready. None of us would be willing. We would live our life however we want to, and then those last moments we'd say, oh, Lord, will you save me? But here's the reality is he tells you because he doesn't tell you that because he wants you to trust him now because he has a plan for your life, a way better plan that you could ever dream up of. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, you need to come to know him. Listen, if you're walking with the Lord, you're trusting him, you're doing all the things that you should be doing, hey, I want to just continue to pray for you that the Spirit of God will flood upon your life and that God will use you in these last days like he's never used you before as you stay faithful to him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and for just, these, just this presentation of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, we thank you so much, Lord, for uh, giving this vision to John. And we can sit here some 2,000 years later and capture in our own hearts and minds who you are, the glory that you deserve. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus into this world to live a sinless life, to be the perfect one. That he would be crucified on a cross for us and risen again from the dead so that we could be saved. You do it, you only had to do it once, but you would do it over and over and over again if you had to because you love us that much. So we pray this morning, God, there are people in all different states here in this, in this place and online, Lord, and we ask you to just meet us where we are. May your spirit come and flood us now. We pray in Jesus' name. And as we continue to pray, listen, if you don't know that you're going to heaven this morning, I want you to lift your hand, and I want to pray a prayer with you to invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, lift your hand up. Listen, you don't know, and that's not a pressure tactic. That's reality. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what, you're not guaranteed the next breath. What you are guaranteed is right now, in this moment, what will you do with Jesus? If you want to know the Lord, lift your hand up. I'll pray a prayer with you. God bless you. Anyone else?
Anyone else who want to come to know the Lord this morning? You want to know that you know that you know it. He's a prayer away, man. He's standing here waiting, bearing the marks of Calvary. He said, I was crucified for you. I rose again from the dead for you. Don't let pride stand in the way this morning. Humble yourself before the, the, the Lord, and he will exalt you. He'll give you eternal life. Anyone else this morning at all? For those who raise their hand, Lord, we just, would you just preach pre this prayer after me? Father God, I come to you in Jesus' name, and I receive you into my heart. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, Lord. I turn away from it, and I turn to you. I repent. And I ask you to be the Lord of my life. I believe that you died on the cross for me, that you rose again from the dead for me, and I put my trust in you, in Jesus' name. And Father, for all of us who here, for the rest of us, Lord, we just pray your spirit fall on us, Lord, that we represent you well. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.